0: Yeah. Now, Maidenhead's a very conservative town. Yeah. Theresa May is the constituency MP there. I think about walking down the River Thames in Maidenhead with my kids for a wholesome autumn afternoon. <laughs> you know, maybe I get them an ice cream, and I look down at the river, and there's there's a, a broken shit in the river with the remnants <laughs> of a uh, great British breakfast yeah. inside, you know? And I look down at that, and I think, that's fucking gross, Otto. Mm-hmm. But even that won't convince all of these Tory voters around (laughs) me that maybe Labour could have done better than the shit in a river. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 42 of Aid Thompson and Other Disappointments. Joining me this week, my guest, uh, political commentator, journalist and author of the book Fake History, 10 Great Lies and How They Shape the World uh, is Andrew Scott also known as Otto English. Welcome to the show, Otto.
1: Thank you, Adrian.
0: How's it going? All right? <laughs> Baby? Yeah, I can hear you. I was just saying, I'm how's sorry. it going? All right. <laughs> <laughs> We're starting strong. I've had to do like two takes of the intro and then, uh... but you know what? Let's just, let's just go with it. We um... could
1: just do it in mime. We could do it as a mime. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I I thought you'd be an interesting uh, person to get onto the, the show because every, every now and then, Obviously, Twitter is a fucking dumpster fire. Um, but every now and then, you come across an account where you think, "Ah, oh, I, I get this guy. Like, we 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 sort of share a lot of sensibilities around the current, I don't know, despair of the political landscape. And, um, uh, and I, I suppose if I'm honest about it, like my my faith in the British public and the British electorate has never been so low. And I sort of, I follow yourself and Ian Dunt and a few others where there's just the right amount of sarcasm that comes through that it's just, you know, (laughs) a bit of humour is sprinkled in there and it makes, makes a day a little bit easier. Well,
1: it's it's what Byron said, you know, should I laugh at any mortal thing, it is that I may not weep.
0: Yeah.
1: And that written 200 years ago. I mean, you could apply that pretty much to every day. Yeah. A lot of people Get very serious about all of this stuff, and it is very serious. But I think you've got to inject a bit of light uh, into the darkness, otherwise we're all fucking doomed, really, aren't we?
0: Well, that's yeah. it. Yeah, it's sort of uh, like half gallows humour and then half, like as my dad would say, like, well, if you didn't, if you didn't laugh, you'd cry, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, could we? Do, do you think we could get a quick bio? Because I'm aware that you know you've written some stuff for the Independent in in the voices area, and you've got this book out. Um, what sort of journalism did you do? How did you get into it? So.
1: Yeah. So, and the reason I'm called Otto English, it's all very. It's it's a very boring origin story. Mm. <laughs> That's what we're it's, here for. Yeah. Worthy of a spin-off in the Marvel Universe. Um, basically, I uh, I worked in the theatre in my twenties, which means that I didn't eat between about uh, twenty one and thirty two. Right. And then I spent a decade, um, more than a decade, teaching and training in the all sorts of peculiar jobs like that. Um and then I around 2010, I think it was, I mean just after the Tory Tories came to power in coalition, I started tweeting. I'd never stopped writing plays and things, but I couldn't make a I didn't make a living out of it. Um, but I was one of those really annoying, original um, spoof accounts. I would I would do spoof accounts because I saw a lot of spoof accounts and I thought they were really shit. So <laughs> I started impersonating Jacob Rees-Mogg when no one knew who Jacob Rees-Mogg was. Right. Uh, so that was back in 2010, 2011, right. I think. Um, and he got quite angry about it. And there was uh, press and uh, he got very angry actually. Um, and, you wouldn't yeah. would think if
0: somebody that's That much of a caricature of himself Could possibly get angry at someone else well, that's, it. A, you know?
1: You know, that's it He clearly didn't have much of a sense of humour And then um, it caused all sorts Of confusion because I was rather Good at pretending to be Jacob Rees-Mogg And uh, so PM and things started reporting his tweets As him and they were mine I was all over the uh, Kept kept popping up in the papers And all this kind of thing um, and it got completely out of hand. Uh, I think, you know, back then, he had, my, that account had like 20,000-odd followers, and a very large percentage of them clearly thought it was him. Right. So at some point, somebody said, you know, you've got to go along with the joke to him, obviously, and he went along with the joke. And then I, then I realized I'd broken the sacred rule of satire, which is if the person's laughing along with you, you've lost. Uh, yeah. you know. So I gave up on that. And, and so I started fighting more seriously, and then the Scottish referendum happened, and then the EU, EU referendum bubbled up. And I'd adopted the name Otto English, partly because I was spoofing Jacob rees Morgan I didn't want him to sue me. And also, because there's an actor called Andrew Scott, and I was still working in the theatre. Andrew Scott's the hot priest in uh, that show that everybody watches. Oh, uh, <laughs> Fleabag. <laughs> Fleabag. Yeah. Um, so I changed my name for the purposes of writing. I adopted a pen name and I wrote a couple of very small fringe plays under that name, just so I didn't, and then I thought I'll just carry on using auto English. And then I found that my blog, which I'd started, which was a bit sort of, you know, I wrote about any old gubbins and nonsense. I found that the politics stuff, uh because we were living in such a hot political age, mm. was really taking off. And then, um, weirdly, I found people asking me to write journalism. I, I mean, oh. it all happened. It it almost literally happened without me trying, that bit. Yeah. The other stuff, the, the, all the years of writing, trying to write books, all the years of trying... You know, it's the John Lennon cliche, isn't it? Life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. Yeah, uh, great quote. Yeah. It accidentally happened whilst I was trying to do other stuff. Um, and then I sort of – it was very weird. My mother uh, got Alzheimer's about 10 years, and, I, and, and it was like it lit a fire under my ass, And it was like I realized, you know, life does – come to an end and you and and bad things can happen and it's sort of and then with all the political stuff going on which was enraging me so much I just felt sort of hugely sort of energized by it all um and angry and anger is a great driving force and and that's what happened so the the journalism happened somebody approached me and said you should write a book he became my agent and mm-hmm. then um here we are sitting here today
0: yeah that's interesting i i feel like i've got we've got a few parallels with you there in the sense that um so i'm not a published (laughs) author or anything but i'd sort of petered along with my stand-up for a long time and i I worked pretty hard at it for about Mm. five years just doing like open mic night after open mic night and then i did a big show at the leicester square theater and um and then i had kids and it crushed my dreams and uh Uh, and, but the <laughs> right, um, but the the intention was always to sort of return to it once my kids were a bit more settled and, you know, childcare was a bit more settled and so on. Um, and then I, I happened across TikTok sort of by accident. Like, people were going on about it, but I just saw it as like, the latest version of Vine, which I'd well. messed around on, but none of my comedy videos had ever really taken the world by storm. Um, and then I went on... It's about, must've been about six or eight months ago now. And I, I shared some thoughts about Harry and Megan yeah. and it just like caught fire. I thought yeah. that's, that's probably just the algorithm, you know, trying to yeah. stoke, stoke me, trying to get me more, you know, in, it, like, on the app more. And, uh, and so then I thought, oh, maybe I'll do one about Brexit tomorrow. So I did one about Brexit and then that exploded and i just thought oh this is fucking great i don't even have to be funny like i don't have to <laughs> sit and think of some yeah. clever like wordplay thing i could just talk you know about my frustrations and give people the other side of it and so i've sort of been doing that ever since i've kind of fallen yeah. into uh yeah i think
1: so- sometimes you don't necessarily you don't necessarily know what you're doing right yeah <laughs> and then and then it sort of and that sort of happens and i think, I think um, you Know, I was genuinely really angry about Brexit and I was genuinely really angry with the government and I was genuinely really angry that my mother was succumbing to outsiders, those uh, and that the government, you know, and that you were just all left. To... Oh, have we lost you? My kids, are... you lost me.
0: I lost you for a split second there. Sorry, carry on.
1: Okay, so my and my, um, yeah, my kids are teenagers now. They yeah
0: i think if people can sense that there's there's um you know in, in a world of increasingly like fake news mm. and fake people and you know to have somebody that's actually going through some shit talking about it honestly from the heart with passion is is something that perhaps resonates with mm. people like a lot now I don't know um i i wanted to talk to you a bit about the changing shape of of politics in the uk um it felt like last week last week or the week before now um with the, the tragic murder of David Amos that this was something that had sort of come out of the blue again mm. uh that the 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 violent tribalism that we've had since the referendum had sort of erupted once mm. more uh and and we looked at the murder of Joe Cox in a similar fashion like this was uh this was a a tragic occurrence but incredibly rare uh, still a symptom of, of the divisive narrative that was being spun everywhere but but thankfully these things were very very, these were just blips mm. um, but it feels to me like if this has happened twice in the space of this few years is, like, could you make a case that this is the new normal? Do you think this is just how it is well,
1: now? Well, uh, so, we we yeah, I mean, I, I get, uh, on the day of the murder, I was on um I did a byline TV thing that I was already booked Mm. to do. And obviously we all decided that we we could only really talk about that. You couldn't start talking about Brexit issues or something when a terrible event had happened. And um, I think it's when something of that nature happens, uh, you've got to be very careful (laughs) because... um, You've got to be very careful how everybody has to be very careful how they respond to it, because obviously we don't know the full details of this. But you're right. These are public figures have become definitely targets online um, and targets of hate. And you read terrible things of people receiving hate mail, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But this is not new. Right. And I know this because my mother worked in the Houses of Parliament for 30, well, 25 years and worked for a Member of Parliament. And they would receive green ink letters, they called them. Green ink letters were the pre-Twitter hate mail. (laughs) You would get weird letters. um, And sometimes it would be the same person over and over again. People either with... fairly harmless people with conspiracy theories, but also hate mail. You would get hate mail. So the idea that um, MPs are only receiving abuse since the invention of the internet and social media is wrong. It's, but the scale of the abuse, obviously, greater, because it's much easier to send somebody uh, an offensive tweet than to take the time to go and buy the paper, get the stamp, get the envelope, and then post it through the letterbox. Yeah, My mother's, my the... mother's boss was also uh, murdered whilst he was sitting right. MP. So that was in 1979. Uh, he was murdered by the INLA, which was a splinter group of the IRA. Right. So and a few years later, Ian Gow, another public figure, was also murdered by the IRA. Now, weirdly, uh, we're very quick. To forget events like that. <laughs> As a yeah. society, we, we very rapidly forget I, you know the, the Irish troubles, which is one reason why it was all forgotten in the build-up to Brexit. And and anybody who brought it up, like the Irish border and yeah. the peace process, was, and I know this because I researched it recently, was oh no, that will be everything will be fine. Project fear. Yeah. yeah. So the so the idea that MPs were not targets in the past, uh is not true we have had these two events very close together but i think the reason behind them both is going we're going to discover is slightly different that doesn't mean that mps are not public targets but the but the the cause behind them and the justification self-justification of the murderers is going to be different i think
0: sure sure i think it's that uh, to to my mind, there's a couple of factors that are at, at play. The first one is what I like to think of as the sort of road rage of vacation, if you like, of like Twitter. So, you know, we all know that when we're in our car and we're stuck in the traffic lights, then... Uh, if somebody cuts in front of us then we go we're we're irate like we're saying the worst possible things about that person i think louis ck did a a thing about it where he said that um you know somebody cuts you up by like you know 10 inches or something out of nowhere you're like i hope you die you know like it's like vitriol. like i hope your children grow up fatherless like it's so like whoa where did that come and and uh, i think the psychology of it uh you know I'm, i'm no psychologist but I imagine it's something along the lines of that you are enclosed in this sort of protected space. So you feel like you can say this shit and there not be any comeback. And in a very similar fashion, I think when you're on Twitter and you say horrible things, you're behind, you know, protected behind your your monitor and your you know, the whole keyboard warrior thing. Um, I think there's that to factor in. So that's increased the, the problem maybe tenfold or a hundredfold. Um, Also, everyone has access to to a computer and spends, you know, hours on every day doing it, whereas not everyone would have, it would have even occurred to anyone to be psychologically imbalanced enough to write hate mail to to an MP back in the past. Um, But, yeah,
1: exactly. The thing with history, in fact, with writing my book, You go back in time, you see the same shit just happens with different technology throughout history, you know. I mean, a a prime minister was murdered in this country, but it was 200 years ago, so we've all forgotten
0: it. Uh, Spencer Percival... So now it's like, it could never happen here. It fucking has
1: happened here. (laughs) Spencer Percival was shot by somebody who bore a grudge against him in the... um, I think it was in Westminster Hall, but it was certainly at the entrance to... um, to westminster uh, this guy right. walked in and shot him um so the the idea that we live in it's another it's another thing that people think people think we live in increasingly violent times or that um you know or, or that the society has become more dangerous but uh hmm. 200 years ago you could walk around with a flintlock pistol in your pocket and shoot somebody <laughs>
0: yeah well If we keep going at the same rate of uh, regression as we currently are, (laughs) I expect (laughs) a return. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I I joke about, you know, this sort of increasing shift into further and further right-wing ideology, but it honestly would not surprise me at all if we start talking about reintroducing capital punishment. Uh, Oh, yeah. You know, that fits exactly to their brand of...
1: Yes, but I mean, Pretty Patel, prior to becoming a minister, um, I can't remember the year, I think it was early, I think she was definitely an MP, so it would have been after 2010. She did a famous uh, uh, question time, uh, she was a panelist on question time, and she openly talked about bringing about the death penalty. Yeah. Uh, she, she later did a U-turn on that, but only because she probably thought it would hinder her path to higher office. But I have little doubt that the likes of Pretty Patel uh, would be quite happy to reintroduce something like the death penalty. Um, uh, and leaving the EU so completely, theoretically, leaves the door open to that to some extent, although we are still signed up to the European Convention on Human Rights. So theoretically, we can't do
0: that, but- uh... But then that would, uh, you know, in order to have some faith in us not reintroducing that, you would have to have faith that we wouldn't break international law in a limited and specific way, right? So, (laughs) uh, I don't know. Uh, I feel like, like when I look at the United Kingdom in 2021, going into 2022, and I think of what we were like 10 years ago, 2011, mm. 2012 mm. and what a dramatic, depressing shift it's been mm. in in just what this country is like. Like we've gone from being this sort of you know the Olympic ceremony to being a, an open and welcoming place, and and arguably you know I know a lot of people had a lot of problems with austerity and rightly so, but uh, mm. that first coalition government. You had a feeling like maybe the Conservatives kind of got a little bit of it, and they were being yeah. earwigged by the Liberal Democrats in some ways. Um, it felt like you know, not the end of the world. Uh, yeah. Now I think of where we're at now with, with Brexit's rivers of shit and you know yeah. demonization of immigrants, and I'm just like, where the fuck is this going? You know? <laughs> yeah,
1: well, I mean, so so I think what that the, they've they've managed to. Uh, so, yeah, I think all the problems of our modern age go back to 2008 and the financial crisis. I mean, yeah. that's when that's when everything really went wrong, uh, not least because Gordon Brown faltered and fell as a result of the financial crisis. Although, arguably, and I'm no big defender of Gordon Brown <laughs> at all. Right. Arguably, Gordon Brown did kind of save the economy and prop it up. Whether that, you know, um, but by two thousand and ten, you've got Cameron and the Lib Dems in coalition. And yes, I think you're absolutely right. The Lib Dems definitely tempered uh, Cameron. Also, Cameron had very much modelled himself as a sort of a sats Tony Blair. Uh, so he kind of came in saying, you know, hug a hoodie and mm-hmm. the loving, caring Conservative Party, not the bastard Conservative Party. But of course, underneath all of that, was the, was the bastard tendency of the Conservative Party. And, and, I do not, and I do not subscribe to the view that everybody who votes Conservative and all Conservatives are ghastly people at all. Yeah? Uh-huh. Because my parents, were right. and they were, and my father in particular was one of the most liberal-minded people I've ever known. You know, and was not racist or any of those kinds of things. So, so um, and yeah, some of my best friends are Tories. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: but, but the, um, but what was what happened, and what what then came to be blaming all the flaws of England and Britain on on European Union and that latent idiotic, stupid uh, Euro-scepticism, which nobody outside, really, of the House of Commons and a few fringe groups and some angry readers of the Daily Telegraph, and nobody, back in 2010, nobody said, oh, let's all leave the European Union. Wouldn't that be a brilliant idea? But well, they did, but a very small minority. Yeah. That, that discussion went mainstream because they managed to kind of package all of the faults of, of Britain, like some cult, they blamed all the faults of Britain on the EU. And they did promise that if we left the EU, there would be this magical future, and that all the people who'd been left behind in the north of England or the poorer parts of the UK, that they would suddenly blossom because we wouldn't be giving that mystical £350 million a week to the European Union. And yep. of course, it was all a crock of shit. Yeah. And you could, you could pretty... So, that's not to say that those people's problems weren't there, because of course they were, but they had not been caused by the European Union or the three hundred and fifty million.
0: Yeah. Why? Why do you think it is that people cannot or or, or refuse to uh, see the the error of their ways? I know that sounds incredibly pompous and, and self righteous right. on my part, but it's like if I if I had voted Brexit and i'm I'm no longer in the camp where I think anyone that voted to leave the EU was a complete moron. Uh, you know i I get that there are various reasons that people were hoodwinked or or yeah. uh, subscribed to the idea that maybe that the European Union were frustrating their family's aspirations or their ability to get ahead and so on. Um, so let's say they like, they did vote to leave. Um, why do you think it is that even years later, when so much evidence is there? that they continue to just cling on to this sort of holy, you know, Brexit can never be criticised. No. Brexit can never really truly be at fault. If it is at fault, then it's the way that it was implemented. It's not Brexit itself. No. Now, why do you think that is?
1: So that's... So the, if you take the cultists, so the, 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 the you've got to split Brexiters up into different groups. Mm. There, there are ordinary people who voted to leave the EU who, because they were asked to vote on something... <laughs> Right. Yeah, so they were asked to vote, and um, the referendum should never have been called. It was an act of total recklessness mm-hmm. by David Cameron in order to uh, resolve his backbench problem, which had rumbled on for since 1975, really, uh, that this sort of hardcore group of anti-Europeans on the Conservative benches. That's why David Cameron called it, and to fend off what was perceived as a UKIP threat. Mm. He thought he'd win it because he'd won the one the year before in the Scottish referendum, but by the skin of his teeth. So it was a a very stupid thing to do, and he's a very stupid man, but we'll come on to him in a moment. Um, So so the vast majority of people who voted for Brexit um, were just asked do you want to stay in the European Union or do you want to leave? And then they had to make this monumentally complex decision based on misinformation that was being fed to people, yeah. on a press obsessed with balance, on a BBC obsessed with balance, which, with, <coughs> and the trouble with EU membership, it's very, very complicated. So... Yeah. Uh, I mean, nobody really understood it. Even people probably working right in the heart of the EU from the United Kingdom probably didn't understand, well, undoubtedly did not understand the extent of the complexity of the arrangement. Um, So those people, I don't... Blame for b- voting Brexit. I, and I, and I don't think... Uh, and likewise, on the Remain side, I think a lot of people who voted in the EU re- referendum didn't understand it either. It became an emotional thing. It became an emotional vote. That's one. Right. Then you've got the cultists. Well, the cultists are the hardcore Brexiters. Now, they've either been uh, turned into that because of the EU referendum, or they were always like that. People like Dan Hannan, who was an MEP, who became Lord Hanan, who kind of wrote the so-called intellectual argument for leaving the EU and, and was the focus of it. These people, and the MPs who've backed it, and the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg, who've always believed in it, and the likes of Farage, as you say, they are very similar to members of a cult. Mm. And people in a cult will never blame the divine prophecy they will always blame something else. So there was a group of people uh, back in the 50s called the Seekers. So um, it's the origin of the cognitive dissonance theory. Um, And they believed a spaceship was coming from Mars or something, another galaxy. And when the spaceship never arrived, they blamed the the wire in their bras. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> these people are called the seekers they blame the wire yeah. in their bras because um, they, they had decided that wire would stop the aliens coming and we're at wire in the bras we're at the wire in the bra segment of Brexit here, they, yep. they're blaming the pandemic, they're blaming uh, the EU they're blaming people for not believing enough um, it's just like a cult so sacred Brexit can never arrive because people aren't, the, people aren't believing in it or somebody else is stopping it happening. It's not that Brexit, divine Brexit itself doesn't exist and will never yeah. exist. And the sunny uplands and all that stuff is never going to happen. It's that it's everybody else's fault. And every cult behaves like that.
0: Yeah. 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 But then like when, when you say that there's the you know, the two forms of Brexiter, if you like, like the sort of, you know, cultists who could yeah. never really be shaken from that position. And then there's the other people who were kind of, you know, led along for the ride and did vote to leave for various yeah. reasons. Um, but you would imagine that some of those who had been taken along for yeah. the ride would yeah. have now got to the point where they're like, you know what, I'm not sure this was such a great idea. But there's there was a poll last week in The Guardian that said we're lit we're just as divided over this now as we ever have been and i like read that and my heart sank i'm just like ah i'd like i mean i want to keep faith in the country i want to be patriotic otto but i i mean they're making it really fucking hard yeah
1: so the other point of comparison which i like to make is the iraq war right so we've all forgot again we all we forget quickly yeah so (laughs) Back in uh, 2003, there there were a series of polls asking the British public if they supported the invasion of Iraq. Now, I was opposed to the invasion of Iraq, so I I remember feeling like most people were against it, but that was because my group of friends were against it. Uh, Actually, polling showed that a fairly, a slightly larger margin than Brexit supported the invasion of Iraq. I, I can't remember the figure off the top of my head, but it was about 55 or 56% of people believed in invading Iraq to stop weapons of mass destruction that didn't exist being used against us, right? Um, Right. Ten years later, YouGov and some other pollers went back and asked people who had been of voting age then what they remembered believing at the time. And it had shifted by about 30 or 40%. So people, really? people said, "Oh, I never supported the invasion of Iraq." <laughs> right, but, I see. So people, you think people pivoted on their view? Now that doesn't yeah. account for everybody, because there's another group of people. People are very human beings are very susceptible to lies. That's why we all occasionally get calls on our landlines of people telling us that they're from Facebook and we need to give them their, our bank card details or something like that. Right, right. And then you've got the the most famous example of all, Charles Ponzi, whose Ponzi scheme took tens of thousands of Americans for a ride. Um, And and when the Ponzi scheme collapsed in 1928 or nine, I can't remember, or maybe it was 1931, but when it collapsed and Ponzi was sent to prison, uh, there was a lull of about nine or 10 years. Everybody had lost their money. Ponzi had been shown to be a criminal, uh, and he had lied to thousands of people and stolen their money, basically. Ten years after the event, the government of the United States went to victims of Ponzi and offered them all 30 cents on every dollar that they had lost. But a significant proportion of those people... Clung on for a return on their investment and refused the government offer. Because even though Charles Ponzi was in prison, even Mm. though he had been sent to prison for 15 years for swindling thousands of people, people still believed that it was going to come good. Because when we've made a mistake, we find it very hard to admit it to ourselves. And when we've made a mistake on a big scale, we find it even harder.
0: Yeah, yeah, which makes you sort of worry for what the like what what could possibly change the course of where we're at now like i think about uh, the the many um but symptoms or sort of ripple effects uh, large and small of brexit thus far uh, and i think of like all the warnings that were in yellow hammer how much that was hysterically reported around at the time. They were mm. like, look at this government. Dog, this is from the government. Even oh. the government know that this could get really, really bad. What are they going to do? And it was like, oh, no, 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 don't worry. about it. I mean, that is the worst of the worst of the mm. worst case scenarios. Yeah. Don't worry about it. You know, junking their own warnings, yeah. basically. Um, and, and now we're seeing a lot of those warnings come to pass and, and in some cases in, in a worse manner than even they had predicted. Oh. Uh, so, you know, obviously referring to... Um, Petrol shortage. We're talking about scarcity of food on shop shelves. We're talking about the impact of hospitality. And now, most recently, we're looking at Brexit's um, rivers of shit right. debacle. Uh, and and I wonder if if walking with your family, down, like I'm from Maidenhead originally. <laughs> yeah. Now, Maidenhead's a very conservative town. Yeah. Theresa May is the constituency MP there. I think about walking down the River Thames in Maidenhead with my kids for a wholesome autumn afternoon. <laughs> you know, maybe I get them an ice cream and I look down at the river and there's there's a, a broken shit in the river with the remnants of a great British breakfast uh, inside, you know. And I look down at that and I think, that's fucking gross, Otto. Yeah. But yeah. even that won't convince all of these Tory voters around <laughs> me that maybe Labour could have done better than yeah. the shit in a river. You know, like, and and none of these these scandals um, seem to move the dial at all. No, so because the
1: suppose... pandemic has has come a lot. I mean, the pandemic has been a total disaster for this country, but um, it's been quite good in a way for the Conservative government because they can mm-hmm. pretty much, oh, it's the pandemic. So some of it is the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. But, but this goes back to the whole Remain Brexit argument of 2016. Um, once you start getting into complexity on things, people's eyes begin to glaze over. People want yeah. simple, uh, easily easy easy feed news and easy feed information, and they want to they want to take a few minutes of their attention and go, oh, it's that. So, yeah. um, and the trouble is, and you know, remainers. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a remainer. Uh, well not because you can't be a Remainer anymore because we're not it, <laughs> we're not, we're not sure. it. But, but the trouble with a lot of Remainers and I think I've been guilty of this myself in the past is to blame everything on Brexit and when it's disproved you look like and you look like a cult member as well so, um, yeah. so the, the problem with this nation is that we're all very visibly divided and really we've lived through a civil war but we've lived through a civil war without bullets So, well, unfortunately, there have been bullets, but largely it's been a non-violent civil war. Twitter has been the battlefield to some extent. Facebook has been another front, um, and we've all been engaged in it to some extent. And some of us have been fighting on the front line and other people have been keeping the home fires burning, but it has been a civil war. And um, civil wars can take decades to heal from because everybody's dug... Their trenches and hate the other side.
0: Do you you feel like um, this is a sort of an anomaly 10 year period that's been quite troubling politically for Britain? Or do you feel like, I don't know if you've had a chance to read Charles Arthur's book, Uh, Social Warming? Oh,
1: really? Oh, there we go.
0: Um, But I wonder to what extent his theory is actually the reality of this where it's like yes it's very politically unstable in the uk at the moment we might break up the united kingdom everyone's very divided and binary um but like when i say my faith is on the floor is it is it basically that this is the beginning of the end of political stability in the uk because everyone is so radicalized like i and i saw sort of count myself in that as well because <laughs> You know, I'm very passionate about us rejoining Europe at some stage. Mm. I, I appreciate that that doesn't feel very likely at the moment. Yeah. I'd like to remove the Tories from power. I don't think they're going to do anything in, in my interest, my family's interest or, or the people who are really struggling out there. And I feel very strongly about these things. But would I have felt this strongly about things if, if this were like 20 years ago? I don't think I would have without the Internet.
1: Um, yeah. Again, I think we're very quick to forget. I mean, I was a student in the late '80s at the University of Kent, which was a very radical had a very radical left wing element in it. In fact, unfortunately, it spawned the Revolutionary Communist Party, which has brought so much yeah, right shite to this nation in the process. In the, in the <laughs> with people like Claire Fox and that lot. Like. Anyway, um, we all hated Thatcher and uh, and were very energised, and I went. I mean, I ne- I was never really a member of a political group, but I was a broadly left wing, uh, anti Tory, anti poll tax. I did refuse to pay my poll tax, got summons mm. and left, and never heard any more. So I hope the Kent County Councils don't catch up with me following this podcast. But we we were all radicalised. People really hated Thatcher, and. And people were similarly divided over Thatcher and Labour and back then. This is worse, again, because, as Charles points out in his book, you know, we've got social media and all of that stuff. But as much as it's tempting to think that everything's going to tumble into shit, uh, we can look at the United States and realise that it is possible to start climbing out of that shit pit quite quickly. Um, mm. Everything doesn't necessarily have to be disastrous. And since this government has managed to congeal all of the Brexit shit in one place, like a big blockage in the drain, you know, yeah. if we get a powerful enough host, we might be able to blast it out the other end and go on with our lives.
0: So you're saying blast it out and into the river. Good stuff. <laughs> all right. That's
1: my extended metaphor for today. but But yeah. I think that is... That is possible to do, and I think that as we move further away from the EU referendum, and I think people who voted Remain, including myself, we have to accept that rejoin is not going to happen, Yeah, Mm -hmm. and it's not an out of breath. But I put a lot of faith in the generations Mm -hmm. below me, including Mm -hmm. my own children's generation, because they've grown up with the internet, and they've grown up with global conversations, and that's been part of their entire life experience, where I mean, we've all had the internet in our adult lives, or people of our you know, age, but, but they've had it and never had anything else. So yeah. I, I think nationality and nationalism will suffer over time because of the internet. I think, this is my possibly stupidly optimistic view on the world, I think that as that generation rises, they will care less about passports and borders and boundaries because they they talk across those borders and boundaries and they don't notice them because of the internet.
0: Yeah, well, one of the the points um, Professor Martin Spinelli um, exposed me to the other day was, he was saying, because I I was sort of um, uh, opining my uh, hysteria at the the hold that tabloids have on the UK. I was saying, like, you know, until the sun and the male, but mostly the son. Mm -hmm. Once Murdoch grows tired of of a Tory government, then I think we'll actually see some sort of change. Uh, and his, his take on it was actually, you know, I teach 19, 20 year olds and they are not fussed about newspapers in the slightest. They get their news from international sources. They don't subscribe to this sort of Murdochian view of the world. And, um, and in turn, I sort of feel like, well, yeah, because they're nineteen or twenty, like when I was nineteen or twenty, I wasn't really obsessed with the news in the in the same way that I am now. But I'm yeah. not sure there's 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 credence to his point that the, right. the younger generations coming up, things will be different and they will care right. less about what uh, what some sort of eighty five year old billionaire thinks. Um, right. They'll be empowered to make their own decisions and and as I say, get their news and their opinions from different places. Um, but uh, but yeah I don't know I, I thought his uh... yeah. No, I mean
1: I think I, I newspapers will undoubtedly uh, print newspapers are going to die yeah? yeah there is no two ways about that they're going to die and they're going to die fairly quickly I think within a decade we won't see newspapers on the stands there might be weeklies mm. and there might be sort of subscription models like byline times or private eye but I I think uh the, the 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 classic sun tabloid type newspaper is going to die with that its influence will wane to some extent been, i mean i still find it really bizarre that like on sky news and things you still have um a paper review i mean thank you, you. Yeah, it's what i was yeah. saying the
0: other day i was yeah. like why are we well, allowing we these fucking comic you know, books to set the tone 19,
1: are we in 1986 or something it's yeah. very odd you know um but
0: the problem with that is is in my mind and and be interested to get your thoughts on this also but because the nature of of instant news on twitter um has has kind of pushed newspapers tabloid and broadsheet into the realm of opinion uh because nobody's gonna spend 30p on the sun to get like the news story that was already published on the internet that they read on their lunch break on their phone right so the thing that they have is opinion and punditry um, and, and then the problem with that is that when we still subscribe to this idea of like what the papers say in the morning, you're not getting like, it's not what's just happened news. It's mm. what the sun thinks about this. So you've yeah. got like a page one thing saying pure evil, like on the front yeah. page, or you've got like a page one headline in the mail saying now EU tried to blah, blah, blah you know, and it's, right. that's not fucking news. That's opinion. Uh, yeah.
1: yeah. 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 I mean, that, 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 I mean, they've always done that to send. But their influence has waned because there's a lot more influence around yeah 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 uh, i mean 20 or 30 20 years ago the sun had um daily circulation figures of something like three and a half million copies i mean it was a huge yeah. huge influence i don't know what the figures are now but i'm pretty sure they're well under a million yeah well, yeah Uh, So, yes, they've got the online clicks and stuff like that. I mean, mail is different because mail online, of course, is a massive platform. It's much bigger than the sun. Uh, Mm. Mail online, I think, is the largest global news platform. More people read mail online than anything else. So I think it certainly was the case two or three years ago. That's why Murdoch is now experimenting with different formats and trying to think about, I mean, he didn't do gb news but he thought of launching uk tv news and there is yeah. now going to be a talk version of, of sort of tv channel um but luckily yeah, he owns talk
0: radio as well now yeah
1: great, isn't I, think. I mean luckily in the uk we have still got offcom kind of regulating that stuff so everybody panicked about gb news and was like oh it's going to be like fox uk but you can't actually do fox uk but you've got well, to have some kind of balance
0: yeah, isn't isn't the concern, though, that the Tories, in their infinite wisdom and media savviness, that they will uh, shoehorn a spiff into the head of Ofcom role? So there was talk about, was it Paul Dacre was yeah. originally in line and then yeah. they removed him? Um, so that's my worry, is that, yes, we have this sort of set of controls, this mechanism to manage media bias in some way, shape, or form. Uh, but what if the person who heads that up just doesn't give a fuck yeah. or sits, you know dominantly in the right of the political landscape um the the another question i wanted to to run by you was how you know we we both spend a lot of time on twitter and and we express our opinions about how we would like to see change happen or you know what if we could get various policies over the line or if the tories stopped being evil for one fucking week um how do you think that change is going to come? Because there's there's a few ideas that get mooted around. We've got proportional representation, uh, a progressive alliance, tactical voting, um, maybe in some fantastical universe, uh, we even get a Labour majority in. Oh. But like, how how do you think? But what, what's the avenues that you see open to us to so affect change? The Conservative change? Party, I, I'd say, let, here's another reason. to be there are two
1: reasons to be optimistic in one podcast. What more could anybody ask for, right? <laughs> when you break, right. It, When you break down the figures of how people voted in the 2019 general election, or if you yeah. look at those polls, the, like the one you were referring to, the, oh, no, that was about Brexit Remain. There was a poll which showed... Uh, last week the Conservatives were just ahead. But actually if you tot up the figures of the opposition, so if you tot up the Greens, Lib Dems, Labour and then the Nationalist Party, so the SNP and Plaid and Clayton, those people, um, you actually have a majority <laughs> Yeah, yes, I So people go, "Oh, everyone's a moron in Britain, or they're all right-wing lunatics voting for Boris Johnson." And, and actually, one thing that really annoys me as an internationalist is when I get Scottish nationalists going to me, "Oh, everybody in England voted for Brexit," and and I feel like, I, "Do you read my Twitter feed?" <laughs> <laughs> you know. Anyway, yeah, um, I think so if you talk it's a- comfort, isn't there? If you tot all those figures up then there is a broadly centrist left-leaning country that we have here the population people are generally quite open-minded the trouble with first past the post is and people say it's always been ever been thus you end up with a minority governing the majority um mm. so I mean, you know, famously, when Winston Churchill uh, came back to power in 1951, he actually lost the popular vote to Labour. More people voted for Clement Attlee than voted for um, Winston Churchill. A fact fact that has been conveniently forgotten. Labour really won. If there had been proportional representation, Labour would have significantly won, but the Conservatives won. Um, So... This country needs whole scale, major constitutional change and electoral change. And some, I'm not an expert enough to say this, but some form of proportional representation Mm. would resolve a lot of the bitterness and division. In the meantime, it frustrates the hell out of me that the centre and the left is so fragmented when they're all pretty much saying the same thing. I mean, you yeah. know, you put a paper between the Lib Dems, Labour, and the Greens, for example. Um, so, and and they they splinter the vote in constituencies. Yeah. And not always, but but you could tip the balance. Um, those parties are unlikely ever. To come together in some grand alliance and take on the Conservative party because otherwise they wouldn't bother having their parties in the first place I mean they do it they do it in some constituencies I think in Richmond uh, in the by-election uh, uh, Colin Ryan was they managed to keep Zach Goldsmith out by standing the greens stood down, I think, and uh, labor won but
0: yeah yeah, yeah and I, I think the other the famous example or inverted example would be um uh dominic raab's constituency he's he's in there by a hair's breadth um and if if one of the opposition parties had just gone you know what we're going to let labor take this or or Mm. labor indeed had said we're going to let the dems take this uh he'd be out of a job well he'd probably just get ejected to the house of lords but um uh but yeah it's 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 i suppose one of the big frustrations of the left in this period is that when you look at the Conservative Party, they might have their differences amongst them. You might get the real, you know, fire-breathing Eurosceptics, and then you get the sort of moderate Tories and, and the home counties Tories and uh, and so on. But when it actually comes down to an election, they just go, yeah, I'll just vote for Boris. Right. Um Whereas on the left, we sort of, you know, I suppose the gift and the curse, maybe, of being on the left. And I don't want to give give us all a pat on the back, but the left-leaning right. people that I engage with are are... Uh, intellectual, they think, they're considered, they're measured, um, they're critical thinkers. And Ooh. and part of that, unfortunately, is that they look at uh, parties like Labour and they go, well, I'd like to vote for Labour, but, you know, they're not perfect. They don't tick every yeah. single... And the Lib Dems more closely reflect my personal sensibilities." So yeah. it, it never seems to really... Maybe it does occur to them, but it doesn't seem to occur to them that by doing that by splitting the vote in their constituency actually what they're doing is by proxy voting for more tory government and that's incredibly frustrating
1: oh it's so frustrating i mean i was i mean i don't like to invoke the whole corbyn era labor party but i mean that's what you had in the corbyn era labor party Pe- people wanting to be sort of holier than now you know sort of sacrificial lambs rather than muddy their feet with centrists or potential Conservative voters who might come over and tip the balance. Um, As long as First Past the Post exists, it has to be... Elections have to be fought according to the rules of the game. You you can't... It's like, you know, if if you go along saying, oh, I'll vote for the Green candidate, even though they're only going to pick up 900 votes, it's like taking a look a lacrosse stick to a rugby match, you know. You're, yeah. you're playing with the wrong tool. Um, you've got to vote sensibly, and you've got to park some of the things you might not like about a party and vote for it. I mean, where I live, it's but here in Lewisham, we are solid, solid Labour. I mean, you know, even even the rats are Labour. You know, <laughs> everything's Labour. You can't. Everything's Labour around you. But in, if I was living in a constituency where I knew that a Lib Dem was to have a chance. For example, I would one hundred percent vote for the Lib Dems or or any party just to try and take the balance. And you're right that there's a lack of common sense about how it all works.
0: Really, I think people like to give themselves a pat on the back as well. Like it sort of goes back to what you were saying earlier about people like a simple story. They like mm. um, the good versus the evil. They, you know, and and this sort of feeds into that. Like I, I live in a in an army town and it's very conservative um i voted labor because they were the the most likely similar to your situation most likely to unseat the tories which didn't stand a fucking chance because every, everyone here is like home county's tory but um but yeah in, in a similar fashion if if the lib dems had been predicted ahead i, I would have absolutely tactical voted but i think people like to tell themselves uh, well, I'll vote for Green because I know that that's right. That's that's best. I agree with their manifesto the best. And then I can tell my friends down the pub proudly that you I voted, know. you know? And I, I guess you've got to kind of give them some credit for that, for sticking to their principles and, and their morals and ethics and so on. But it's it, I wish that you could just sort of pan out and be like, look, like like you said. You
1: a bigger picture, yeah. Yeah.
0: and yeah. and think if we looked at the Labour Party or, or a sort of Labour Lib Dem coalition in the same way that, that Westminster Tories look at the Conservative Party, which is, look, let's get into power and then we'll form lobby groups and yeah. then we can make the change and, and present our case and try to get the policy over the line rather than this sort of like, endless infighting and splintering yeah. and factionalisation that seems to just dog the left in the UK right now.
1: Yeah. I mean, one hundred percent. I mean, you know, and it's not just the voting system that needs to be changed. The whole of our way of doing government needs to be changed. You know, um, you know they they talked about taking back control after Brexit, mm. and in a, in a sense, that's exposed what that means. You know, an unelected House of Lords with ninety plus hereditary peers still in it, bishops making laws. Mm. I mean. Like, and and uh, and a population which largely doesn't understand it, you know, I mean, sometimes I tell people, "Did you know that there are only three countries in the world that have lawmaking clerics? <laughs> yeah. uh, so there are three countries in the world where legislation can be voted on and passed by clerics. One of those countries is Iran. Yeah. You know? The other country is the Vatican because everybody's a cleric. Yeah. And the third one is the United Kingdom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's sort of that, perspective. Their jaws kind of drop. Uh, when I when I used to do the, my cultural awareness teaching, you know, I used to tell German people this. They would stare at me like I was like I was some kind of lunatic, and they yeah. said, "What? Well, just tell me that again." You know? And Maybe. then you say, no, we've got 92 hereditary peers. They're, they're there because an ancestor bought a peerage off Lloyd George and therefore, 100 years later, uh, through some... They can vote for each... They, then when one of them dies or decides to to retire, that those 92 can vote for another chum from Eton to come and join their gang. Yeah. I mean, it's utterly bewildering. And, yeah. and this is our great British
0: democracy, you know. But this is the problem: is that we look at ourselves like we we wonder why the rest of the world looks at us such eccentric quits. Mm, and yeah. then you explain a system like that. Like no, I'm I'm I wasn't aware of the intricacies of the House of Lords. um really? uh, And then someone explains it to you like that, and you just think like, "Oh my god! Like, why? <laughs> like, what? What must other countries think of us when? when... Well,
1: Luckily, they don't know. You know, yeah. let's keep that quiet until we've changed it. But they've but but uh, they try to. Ref- Cromwell reformed the House of Lords and, and kicked out the bishops because Cromwell said it's ridiculous that you've got bishops in the House of Lords. Yeah, Cromwell did it yeah. and then they came back they, they evinced a return You know, so it's ludicrous that in a country where four times as many people subscribe to Netflix as ever go to any religious building yeah. you've got you've got bishops in your upper house
0: yeah? it's yeah. nuts yeah, it's sort of like you know the, the the phrase like taxation with representation. It's like who the fuck are they representing? <laughs> yeah. Um okay, last question. I'm I'm super yeah. grateful for your for your time today. Um uh one of the had recently was around what what the British identity is right now 2020. Sorry, 2021. Get what year it is. Um, <laughs> but if I if I cast my mind back over the the last few decades, so in the eighties, um, uh, you know, I was I was born in nineteen eighty, so there's a limit of how much I remember of that period. Yeah. But um, my my perspective of it was that you know it's an era of, of new romantics and global superstars, your Madonna's, your Michael Jackson's, um, high fashion. Um, then in ninety in the nineties, it, it changed to sort of Britpop and lad and ladette right. culture. Uh, in the noughties. I was off my fucking tits most of the time, so I don't really remember much about that. Maybe, yeah. maybe that was the the British identity. If you can
1: remember it, you weren't there. Yeah, <laughs> I right. You said about the sixties. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I can remember the sixties. I was actually just in the sixties, but I was too young to remember it. Yeah, yeah
0: about one year. Yeah. Your sixties um... were my my eighties. Um, <laughs> but it seems like it, it seems like in, the, in 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 the twenty tens and twenty twenties that. The, the British political, or sorry, British like, pop culture identity has sort of shifted yeah. away from, you know, your Chris Evans and your Michael Jacksons and so on to being a sort of angry white guy, like Nigel Farage, um, Toby Young. Yeah. Uh, and then, like, maybe on the left, you've got a sort of, like, Owen Jones kind of thing. Like, this sort of you know, guest pundit on LBC, Jeremy yeah. Vine show kind of like that feels like the british identity to me at this point (laughs) you know is it just my maybe it's my age because i'm sort of more into politics now than i am music but like you know do you feel that as well music i mean i look at
1: my so both my kids are teenagers my my daughter's 14 my son's 17 so and they and again return to the internet they engage with a much broader Culture—a g- much more of a global culture. You know, they listen to Korean pop music, and uh, mm. I, my, my son got into a my son got into a Mongolian indie band. <laughs> wow. indie. it's really, yeah. specific, really and specific and niche. And and I do envy their kind of um, horizon because that horizon is endless. And what you're talking about is people whose horizon is not endless whose horizon stops at the white cliffs of Dover, and always has done, mm. and whose vision of history is, I mean, Farage, Farage's history is basically World War II films from the 1950s and 60s, white men with stiff upper lips and racist named dogs, you know. Yeah. It's a, that, that's their vision of what this country always was. This country was not always like that, yeah. or ever like that. It's a very limited vision that's what they want Britain to be. They want Britain to be that kind of country, you know, sort of carry on at your own convenience type country. Um, so there were always a multitude of cultures. R- what you've articulated is is kind of what I grew up with, because I can remember the 80s. I was a teenager in the 80s. Yeah. And, yeah, and when I had hair um, and <laughs> <laughs> trendy shoes, I always ruined my feet. Um, we, we did sort of... Um, we did engage with that stuff. We did, but we did put eyeliner on. I was saying to my kids the other day: was, the eighties was a very—I mean, I was at a boarding school. I had a very sheltered uh, private school upbringing. But even at my boarding school in Northamptonshire, we were all putting eyeliner on to go to the few discos we were allowed to go to. Yeah, um, and we were all aware that Boy George was gay uh and all this stuff and that was a sharp contrast the decade before so my generation growing up then a lot of the people we liked a lot of the people were openly gay and i'm not you know there's a danger of turning everything into a rose-tinted past where we were like a more liberated generation because that same generation went on to all vote <laughs> for brexit yeah yeah but they were all that same generation were there in the second summer of love in the late eighties and dropping ease and going to dance parties. So um I don't know, I, I think you're right. I think that the, the, the who are the heroes of today in this country, where are the kind of, you know, the alternative mainstream figures and pop stars and and culture leaders of that era? Where is where is the modern boy George or the I'm sure they're there. But they're global figures rather than in our back gardens you know yeah
0: i suppose it's sort Modern. of yeah. it's, it's affected to some extent by uh, just the deluge of like content and music like it's easy to get a, a boy george or george michael Michael Jackson in the 80s, when you've only got like Radio 1 and Capital FM to listen to, and they play the same like 10 songs every hour or whatever. So you would you would have a favorite one out of their selection. And so then you would get into them. And this, this pop star here would get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And now obviously, you know, everyone's got Spotify and there's, you know, it recommends a different playlist to everyone. So there's just this endless supply of new music. And I sort of, I there's a sadness in that because although you do get um you know like you mentioned that one of your children was into sort of k-pop like korean stuff right
1: i mean incre- i'm sure i mean he's not unusual in this i'm sure there are lots of uh teenagers so he's got the most you know incredible taste because he he's not afraid of anything mm. he'll
0: listen to this he'll listen to that he'll um but does he and love I does thought... he like love like one particular band? Is that feeling still there? Yes, I mean he's sort of
1: committed to, to some bands, but he's not committed to time either you know he like he listens to Bowie's Berlin era stuff he'll listen to like 60s stuff um and so they're not as i mean I don't want to generalize with two two children I happen to know well because I've been stuck in a house with them through sure. the pandemic. <laughs> but, but that generation are not limited by their horizons because the internet is unlimited. It's an unlimited horizon, um, and I think maybe our older people we still limit ourselves by the, our horizons, and we mark our age more carefully, and we're aware of, the, the, of that past where there was no internet. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but phony nostalgia is always a dangerous thing, and we have to be careful, you know, because even as we went through the eighties. You know, the 80s was a hugely divisive era. Um, you know, you had uh, Section 28 when Margaret Thatcher tried to ban any mention of homosexuality in schools. I mean, the, those people, the, all the acolytes of Margaret Thatcher say, oh, it's cancel culture today about anything when anybody questions anything. Those same discussions were going on in the 80s. But it was the Tories that were cancelling everything. You know, they put labels on, on records. Um which had a swear word on them saying, you know, parental warning. And they, they cover record covers they didn't. They were, they were the, av- the advance guard in attacking culture back then and trying to cancel everything. The Mary Whitehouse Brigade, who tried to stop Life of Brian being shown, tried to prosecute Monty Python for daring to, to do it, you know, make jokes about Jesus. Yeah. Um, it's always been there. And and every now and then, like flared trousers, it comes back.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How can I how can I not end this this show on flared trousers? It feels like (laughs) Perfect. Um okay, cool. Thank you so much for, for joining me today, also. Um ladies and gents, Otto English, uh, political commentator, journalist, and author of the book Fake History, 10 Great Lies and How They Shape the World. Um, I'll be back on Friday night live um, with a guest that I've not yet booked. uh, So (laughs) stand by for that. Um, And yeah, please subscribe on the Patreon. There's lots more content coming on there very soon. Um, And yeah, I'll catch up with you all soon. Okay. Ciao for now. Bye-bye.